What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the History of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gist of Freedom tonight. And tonight we have a special program, and what we're going to do is uh, going to honor some of our unsung heroes and sheroes. And what we're going to do is start with a young lady by the name of Celia. Celia was an enslaved 19-year-old, enslaved by Robert Newsom. And uh, there was a warrant put out says that she killed her rapist slater. That is, Celia killed Robert Newsom. On the night of the 23rd day of June, 1855 about two hours after dark, by striking him twice on the head with a stick and then put his body on the fire and burn it nearly up. Then took up the ashes on the morning after daylight. After breakfast, the bones were not entirely burnt. So what she did then was took up ashes and bones out of the fireplace in her cabinet, her cabin, I'm sorry, where she burnt the body and emptied them on the right-hand side of the path, leading from the cabin to the stable. Now, this was sworn to and attested before us, the Justice of the Peace, on the 25th day of June, 1855. And Celia made her mark on this. Now, the backdrop on this, Celia was a 19-year-old who was slaved on a Missouri farm for five years where she had been repeatedly raped by her middle-aged slaver. And on the night of June 23rd, 1855, she would later say to a reporter, the devil got into me, and Celia fatally clubbed her master as he approached her in her cabin. The murder trial of this enslaved girl Celia, coming at a time when the controversy over the issue of slavery reached new heights, raised fundamental questions about the rights of slaves to fight back against the worst of the slavers' abuses. 
Now, around 1820, a little background here. Around 1820, the slaver Robert Newsom and his family left Virginia and headed west. They finally settled on some land along the Middle River in southern Callaway County, Missouri. And by 1850, according to the census, Newsom owned 800 acres of land, livestock that included horses, milk cows, beef cattle, hogs, sheep, and two oxen. And like the majority of Callaway County farmers, Newsom also owned slaves, five male slaves as of 1850. Now, during the summer of 1850, the slaver and slave obtained from a slaver in a neighboring Audrain County a sixth African, and this was 14-year-old Celia. And shortly after returning to his farm with Celia, he raped her. Excuse me, do you have a caller on the line? Okay, no caller on the line? Okay, so what were we here? Went to Audrain County. This is where he picked up Celia. She was 14 years old. And no sooner than he got her home, he raped her. Now, for females enslaved, rape was an ever-present threat and far too often a reality. Over the next five years, the slaver would make countless treks to Celia's cabin, located in a grove of fruit trees some distance from his main house, and demand sex from the teenager. He considered his concubine. Celia gave birth to two children between 1851 and 1855, the second being the son of the slaver, Robert Newsom. Now, Celia approached the slaver, uh, his daughters, Newsom's daughters, Virginia and Mary, asking their help in getting the rapist Newsom to quit forcing her while she was, quote, sick. It's not clear whether either of the Newsom daughters made any attempt to intervene on Celia's behalf, but it is known that the sexual assaults continued in, des- in desperation. Celia begged Newsom to leave her alone at least through her pregnancy. Inhumane fellow was ruthless, dogmatic, and unreceptive to her pleas. So on June 23, 1855, Mr. Newsom told Celia, quote, he was coming to her cabin that night. Around 10 p.m., Newsom left his bedroom and walked the 50 yards to Celia's brick cabin. When Newsom told Celia it was time to get raped, She retreated to a corner of the cabin. He advanced towards her. Celia then grabbed a stick, placed there earlier in the day. She raised the stick, about as large as the upper part of a Windsor chair, but not so long, end of quote, and struck her master hard over the head. Newsom groaned, and, I quote again, sunk down on a stool or towards the floor. End of quote. Celia clubbed Newsom over the head a second time, killing him. This is a testimony of a gentleman by the name of Jefferson Jones. 
after making sure he was dead, Celia spent an hour or so pondering her next step. Finally, she decided to burn Newsom's body in her fireplace. She went outside to gather staves and used them to build a raging fire. Then she dragged the corpse over to the fireplace and pushed it into the flames. She kept the fire going through the night. In the early morning, she gathered up bone and fragments from the ashes and smashed them against the hearthstones, then threw the particles back into the fireplace. A few larger pieces of bone she put under the hearth and under the floor between a sleeper and the fireplace. Shortly before daybreak, Celia carried some of the ashes out into the yard and then went to bed. In the morning, as Newsom's family was growing concerned about Robert's disappearance, Celia enlisted the help of Newsom's grandson. His name was Coffee Wainscott. And shoveling ashes out of her fireplace and into a bucket. Coffee testified later he decided to help when the slave said she would have to give me two dozen walnuts. I would carry the ashes out. I said, good lick. Following Cecilia's instruction, Coffee distributed the remains of his grandfather along the path leading to the stables. Investigation and inquest. On the morning of the 24th, Virginia Newsom searched for her father in the nearby creek banks and coves, fearing that he might have drowned. By mid-morning, the search party grew to include several neighbors and Newsom's son, Harry. After fruitless hours of searching, suspicion began to turn to George, who, it was thought, might have been motivated to kill Newsom out of jealousy. William Powell, owner of both slaves and an adjoining 160-acre farm, questioned George. George denied any knowledge of what might have happened to Newsom, but then added, suspiciously, it was not worthwhile to hunt for him anywhere except close to the house. Faced with, most likely, severe threats, George eventually provided an additional damning bit of information. He told Powell he believed the last walking that Newsom had done was along the path, pointing to the path leading from the house to the Negro cabin. George's comment immediately led investigators to the conclusion that Newsom had been killed in Celia's cabin. When a search of Celia's cabin failed to turn up Newsom's body, Powell and the others located Celia doing her regular duties in the kitchen of the Newsom home. Powell falsely claimed that George had told the search party that she knew where her master was, hoping this approach might prompt a quick confession from Celia. Instead, Celia denied any knowledge of her master's fate. Faced with escalating threats, including the threat of having her children taken away from her, Celia continued to insist on her innocence. She undoubtedly understood that confessing to the murder of her master would be an even more serious threat to her relationship with her children. Eventually, however, Celia admitted that Newsom had indeed 
visited her cabin seeking sex the previous night. She insisted that Newsom never entered her cabin, but rather that she struck him as he leaned inside the window. And he fell back outside and she saw nothing more of him. Finally, after refusing for some time to tell anything more, Celia promised to tell more if Powell would send two men, Newsom's two sons, out of the room. When Harry and David left, Celia confessed to the murder of Robert Newsom. Following Celia's confession, the search party located Newsom's ashes along the path to the stables. They also gathered bits of bones from Celia's fireplace, larger bone fragments from under the hearthstone, and Newsom's burnt buckle, buttons, and blackened pocket knife. The collected items were placed in a box for display during the inquest that was to come. Now, acting on an affidavit filed by David Newsom, the case of State of Missouri versus Celia, a slave, commenced. Two justices of the peace, six local residents comprising an inquest jury, and three summoned witnesses all assembled to the Newsom residence on the morning of June 25th. William Powell testified first, providing the jurors with an account of his interrogation of Celia the day before. Twelve-year-old Coffee Wainstott told jurors of Celia's request that he distribute what turned out to be his grandfather's ashes along the path. The third and last witness was Celia, who reaffirmed that she killed Newsom, but insisted that she did not intend to kill him when she struck him, but only wanted to hurt him. The inquest jury quickly determined that probable cause existed that Celia felonously and willfully murdered Robert Newsom. And the slave girl was ordered taken to the Callaway County Jail in Fulton, Missouri, which was nine miles to the north of the Newsom farm. Doubts as to whether Celia could have pulled off her crime without help lingered. Callaway County Sheriff William Snell allowed two men, Jefferson Jones and Thomas Schultz, to conduct further questioning of Celia in her jail cell. Celia added some additional detail to her original story, describing the history of rape, sexual exploitation, that began soon after her arrival on the Newsom farm. But she continued to deny that George played any role in Newsom's death or the disposal of his body. The trial. Celia's trial came at a time of heightened tension over the issue of slavery. In 1854, Congress had passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and allowed settlers in those territories to decide for themselves whether to permit slavery within their boundaries. Northern opposition to the new law led to the establishment of the Republican Party and to campaigns by both pro-slavery and anti-slavery groups 
to influence the outcomes of elections in Kansas. Some prominent Missouri figures, such as U.S. Senator David Etchison and University of Missouri President James Shannon, encouraged their slave state residents to counter the efforts of the abolitionists who were moving to Kansas in the hope of keeping its slave free. Pro-slavery mobs of Missourians attacked both free soil voters in Kansas and threatened fellow Missourians who dared to criticize their bullying. By the summer of 1855, Missouri was awash with pro-slavery rhetoric, increasingly active vigilante groups organized to ensure Kansas would enter the Union as a slave state. On October 6th, three days before the start of Celia's trial, John Brown arrived in Kansas that contained two state legislatures, one supporting Kansas's admission as a free state and one enacting slave laws. On Missouri's western border, the possibility of civil war seemed real. Political implications of Celia's trial could have had escaped Circuit Court Judge William Hall. Certainly he knew pro-slavery Missourians expected Celia to hang. Paul's choice as Celia's defense attorney, John Jameson, was a safe one. Jameson's reputation as a competent, genial member of the bar and his lack of involvement in the heated slavery debates, despite being a slave owner himself, ensured that his selection would not be seriously contested. Jameson could provide the defendant with satisfactory, but not too satisfactory, representation. In addition, Hall appointed two young lawyers, Isaac Balware and Nathan Coons, to assist Jameson in his defense. Celia's jury jurors, of course, were all male. They ranged in age from 34 to 75, and with one exception, were married with children. All were farmers. Several were slave owners. The prosecution's first witness, Jefferson Jones, described his conversation with Celia in the Callaway County Jail. He told Juror Celia's account for the murder and how she had disposed of the body. On cross-examination, Jameson questioned Jones about what Celia had said about the sexual nature of her relationship to the deceased. Jones testified that he had heard Newsom raped her soon after her purchase from an Audrain County farmer and that Celia told him that. Newsom had continued to demand sex in the five years that followed. Jones also acknowledged that Celia had told him that she did not intend to kill Newsom, only to hurt him. Virginia Wainscott, Newsom's eldest daughter, testified next. She described the search for her father on direct examination, testifying. I hunted all over the paths and walks and every place for him, including caves and along the creeks, but I found no trace of him. Virginia faced questioning on cross-examination concerning Celia's possible motive for the killing. 
She admitted that Celia became pregnant, or as they said, took sick, in February, and hadn't been sick ever since, too sick even to cook for the nuisance. After coffee, Wayne Scott described for jurors his unknowing dumping of his grandfather's ashes. William Powell took the stand. Jameson cross-examined Powell vigorously, gaining admissions from the search party leader that he had threatened Celia with the loss of her children and was hanging to obtain her confession. Powell also testified that Celia had complained that Newsom repeatedly demanded sex and that the slave girl had approached other Newsom family members in a vain attempt to stop the rapes. Paul also admitted that Celia told him that her attack on Newsom came from desperation and that she only intended to injure, not kill, her master. After Paul's testimony, the prosecution called two doctors who, did, uh, who identified the bone fragments found in Celia's cabinet as those from an adult human. Following the doctor's testimony, the state rested its case. Dr. James Martin, a Fulton physician, testified first for the defense. Celia, as a slave, was not called as a witness under the existing law in Missouri and most other states. A criminal defendant could not, under what they call the interested party rule, testify. Jameson posed for Martin, questions designed to suggest that Celia was incapable of committing the alleged crime without the aid of another person. The defense attorney asked whether a human body could be so completely destroyed in a simple fireplace in a span of only six or so hours. But the question met with a prosecution objection, which Judge Hall sustained. Jameson tried rephrasing the question a couple of different ways. For example, what, in your opinion, as a scientific physician, would be the time required to destroy an adult human body? But he fared no better with the objections and was forced to abandon that line of questioning. The second and last defense witness was Thomas Schopman. He testified that during her jailhouse interview, Celia said that after she struck Newsom, the first time he threw his hand up to catch her. The judge, however, again sustained a prosecution objection to the testimony, and jurors were instructed to ignore the evidence that suggested the second and fatal blow came only after Celia was physically threatened. Satisfied perhaps, that the jury had at least heard the reasons for Celia's desperate act, Jameson arrested his case. Judge Hall's jury instructions made an acquittal all but impossible. He rejected all nine proposed defense instructions and addressed the question of motive or degree of culpability. Among those thrown out were instructions that could have allowed the jury to return a not guilty verdict if the jury believed that Celia killed Newsom in an attempt to fight off his sexual advances. 
The defense, for example, proposed that the jury be told that they could acquit Celia on a self-defense theory if she believed she was in imminent danger of forced sexual intercourse. Instead of suggesting any viable self-defense argument, Paul instructed jurors that the defendant had no right to kill Newsom because he came into her cabinet, cabin and was talking to her about having intercourse with her or anything else. Given the threat, the defense's proposed instructions presented to establish understandings concerning the very minimal rights of slaves. Paul's pro-prosecution instructions should have come at no surprise. Neither is it likely was anyone in the Callaway County Courthouse surprised when, on October 10th, the jury quickly convicted Celia of first-degree murder. Celia's attorneys appeared again in court the next day to move for a new trial based on Judge Hall's evidentiary rulings during the proceeding and his allegedly erroneous instructions. Judge Hall took 24 hours to consider the defense motion, then rejected it and sentenced Celia to be hanged by the neck until dead on the 17th of November, 1855. The defense motion that it be allowed to appeal the judge's ruling to the Missouri Supreme Court was granted. In jail, awaiting her execution, Celia delivered a stillborn child. As the day for her execution approached, still no word had come from Jefferson City on her appeal filed in the Missouri Supreme Court. Possibility that she might be hanged before her appeal was decided seemed ever more real to Celia's defense team than whoever else she might count among her supporters. Something had to be done. On September the 11th, five days before her scheduled date with the gallows, Celia and another inmate were removed from the Calipay County Jail either with the assistance or the knowledge of her defense lawyers. The defense team, in a letter to Supreme Court Justice Abel Leonard, written less than a month after her escape, noted that Celia was taken out of jail by someone that they felt more than ordinary interest in behalf of the girl Celia, owing to the circumstances of her act. Celia was returned to jail by whom it is not known in late November, only after her scheduled execution date had passed. Mm-hmm. Only, okay, following her return, Judge Hall set a new execution date on December 21st, a date the defense hoped would give the Supreme Court time to issue this decision on their appeal. The Supreme Court ruled against Celia in her appeal. In their December 14th order, 
The state justices said they thought it proper to refuse the prayer of the petitioner, having found no probable cause for her appeal. The stay of execution, the justices wrote, is refused. Celia was interviewed for a final time in her cell on the evening before her execution. Again, she denied that anyone assisted her or abetted her in any way. She told her interrogator, as reported in the Fulton Telegraph, as soon as I struck him, the devil got into me and I struck him with his stick until he was dead and then rolled him into the fire and burned him up. Celia died on the gallows at 2.30 p.m. on December 21st, 1855. Oh, boy, there you have it, the story of Celia. Next, we're going to dispel the myth of happy and content enslaved Africans. And unfortunately, this myth was depicted in the opening scene of the film about Solomon Northrup. If you'll recall, the film opened with a scrawny little overseer is teaching 12 newly enslaved Africans, all armed with machetes, while the overseer is unarmed. This scenario is definitely a Hollywood version of history. African Americans always resisted. The slavers were on guard and armed 24-7, so much so that they had to invent special contraptions to keep the Africans in bondage. Here's a story which shows the slavers' desperation. A woman with iron bells, horns and bells on to keep her from running away. I said, iron horns and bells. This instrument he used to prevent the Negroes running away. Being a very ponderous machine, several feet in height, the cross pieces being two feet, four, and six feet in length. This custom is generally adopted among the slaveholders of South Carolina and other southern states. In case you're just joining us, this is a special edition of the Gist of Freedom. We've been going over some items, particularly the trial of the slave Celia, state of Missouri, Callaway County, who was killed for killing her master to uh, toward his uh, sexual advances. Django, Dangerfield Newby, is a gentleman who fought with John Anthony Copeland. Copeland was a militant abolitionist who rescued John Price. Excuse me here. Talking to you about Mr. Copeland. And I want to make sure I've got this up right here to uh, share this information with you. Um, I believe Mr. Copeland was with John Brown at Harper's Ferry. In any event, John 
Anthony Copeland, who was an Oberlin College student, was a member of the Oberlin Anti-Slavery Society and the Black Militia, was known as the Vigilance Committee, a hybrid of the NAACP and Black Panthers, you might say. And in 1858, Copeland was one of 37 men, 12 of whom were black, that was arrested for their role in the John Price Rescue, also known as the Oberlin Wellington Rescue. When an angry crowd had learned that Langston's negotiations had failed, they quickly sprang into action. Wilson Evans, John Copeland Jr., and Jerry Fox rushed to guard and allowed some of the rescuers to enter the end. A struggle soon broke out in the hotel, during which Richard, Richard Windsor, a theological student, led Price outside, where he was led to a buggy and rushed to Oberlin. Once in Oberlin, the rescuers celebrated their triumph over the hated Fugitive Slave Act. Fugitive Slave Act had been brought about where any constable could arrest a suspected escaped slave and be held and tried in court and be held for the agreed slave owner to recapture the slave. And, of course, this was resisted in the North, and a lot of these escapes uh, occurred uh, quite a bit. Now, eventually, Price was hidden in the home of Oberlin College president, James Fairchild, and later talk, uh, taken across the border to Canada. Thirty-seven of the rescuers were later arrested for their participation in the event. Over the course of the trial, they chose to remain in jail rather than post bond. In solidarity with Charles Langston and Simon Bushnell, who had been convicted and sentenced for their actions, Bushnell was sentenced to 60 days, and Langston and his sentence, or had his sentence reduced to 20 days as a result of an impassioned speech, which is uh, I'll present to you later. While in prison, the jailbirds, as they came to be known, attempted to carry on their with their lives, even printing a newspaper entitled The Rescuer. Getting back to Anthony Copeland, he was born in Raleigh, North Carolina, to a free father and a free mother in 1834. Copeland's father was emancipated in 1819, and they left North Carolina as a family in 1843. They first settled in Cincinnati and then moved to Overland, Ohio. Copeland Jr. had helped his father in his carpentry business in his youth and entered Overland College for the 1854-55 session. Copeland's exposure to anti-slavery activity at Oberlin no doubt influenced his decision to join the Oberlin Anti-Slavery Society. In 1858, Copeland was one of 37 men that was arrested for their role in the John Price Rescue, again, also known as the Oberlin Wellington Rescue, and in 1859, Copeland uh, was recruited to join Brown's Harper's Ferry venture by his uncle, Lewis Sheridan Leary, who was later shot and killed during the raid. Copeland was captured after things started turning bad for the raiders. He attempted to cross the Shenandoah River, 
to escape when he was pursued by James A. Holt, townsman. Copeland and Holt both attempted to shoot each other, but their wet weapons didn't discharge. Copeland threw down his gun, and he became a captive in the middle of the river. Copeland probably would have been lynched right on the spot if it were not for townsman Dr. John D. Starry, who exclaimed that only cowards would want to kill a man who disarmed and became a prisoner. In his trial, Copeland was found guilty and was sentenced to be hanged on December 16th. On his last day of life, the 25-year-old wrote to his parents, Why should you sorrow, he asked. Why should your hearts be racked with grief? Have I not everything to gain and nothing to lose by the change? I fully believe that not only myself, but also all three of my poor comrades who are to ascend the same scaffold, a scaffold already made sacred to the cause of freedom by the death of that great champion of human freedom, Captain John Brown. We are prepared to meet our God. Speaking of Copeland and his stoic nature in facing his death, the Virginia prosecuting attorney said Copeland behaved himself with as much firmness as any of them and with far more dignity. If it has been possible to recommend a pardon for any of them, it would have been the man Copeland, as I regretted as much, if not more, at seeing him executed than any other of the party. Copeland's body, along with that of fugitive slave raiders Shields Green and Brown's son, Watson, were taken to the Winchester Medical School, where they were used as dissecting cabadars. Watson Brown's body was eventually recovered and reinterred with his father in New York State. But Copeland and Green's remains were never reclaimed. In 1865, the African-American citizens of Oberlin erected a monument to Copeland, Green, and Leary, although only Copeland and Leary had ties to Oberlin. The community chose to honor the three together. Again, brought to you by the Guest of Freedom, preserving American history through black literature, online radio. You can pick it up at www.blackhistoryblog.com. Programs are available for free via iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I want to thank our listeners for taking the time to check us out tonight in this uh, special program uh, bring you the trials and tribulations of free a few people back in the day particularly one of those scenes was in the state of Missouri which is seeing some consternation going on now around Ferguson, Missouri a suburb of St. Louis where a young teenage African American male Michael Brown was assassinated murdered no particular reason, by a white officer by the name of Darren Wilson. 
Again, thank you for joining us. I've been your host, Preston Washington, and I want to say good night. Good night, and thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.